Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Go check out Morbidly Beautiful right now for all your horror pop culture needs, from interviews to reviews, top ten lists, and everything in between. They also have a great library of podcasts as well, so go check those out after you finish listening to this episode. Now, last week we celebrated Wes Craven, to a degree anyway. We treated his masterpiece, Freddy Krueger, as if he were a real-life serial killer. I had a lot of fun with that one, and I think you guys did too. So this week, we're going to be looking at another fictional monster and treating him as if he were a real-life murderer. Now, who could it possibly be? Well, maybe this will give you a little bit of a hint. That's right. Maybe, just maybe, this is the most prolific, if not most famous, serial murderer to ever hit the silver screens. This is Michael Myers. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. When speaking of Michael Myers, there's one man that we should listen to most. That would be his doctor, Sam Loomis. He went to say, at one point in time, quote, I met him 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no conscience, no understanding in even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with his blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Michael Myers was born Michael Audrey Myers on October 19, 1957. At the time, he had an older sister. Now, the family resided in a two-story house at 45 Lampkin Lane in the suburban town of Haddonfield, Illinois. By 1963, Michael experienced some weird phenomena inside his own head. He claimed he had suffered from bizarre and inexplicable nightmares and heard a quote-unquote voice in his head that would tell him to do things. The voices, quote, tell me to say I hate people, says Michael. It wasn't until October 31st of 1963 when Michael committed his first act of murder. His parents were away, and he was at home with his sister Judith, who was supposed to be babysitting him. But she cared more about spending time being intimate with her boyfriend, Danny. It's reported that after Danny left, Michael, dressed up in a clown costume, walked into the kitchen and picked up a large kitchen knife. He then proceeded to walk up the stairs and stab his sister Judith to death. He then quietly walked back downstairs and onto the front yard where he waited for his parents and the police to arrest him. After that, Michael was taken to Smith's Grove Sanitarium, where he became the patient of a psychiatrist named Dr. Sam Loomis, 
He spent 15 years with the doctor, barely moving, never speaking a word. Another quote from Dr. Sam Lewis. Michael is the most dangerous patient I have ever observed. He's covering up. This catatonia is a conscious act. There is an instinctive force within him. He's waiting. But what he was waiting for finally came to a head on October 30th, 1978. Reports say that Michael destroyed his room at Smith's Grove and carved the word sister onto his door before breaking out. He also released the other patients from other rooms. At the same time, Dr. Loomis and Nurse Marion Chambers were arriving at the facility to transfer Michael to his court hearing. Noticing the patients roaming around outside the hospital, Loomis got out of the car to investigate as Michael attacked Marion and sped away in their station wagon. As he drove across Illinois, Michael stopped to murder a truck driver and to steal his boiler suit. Traveling to Haddonfield, Michael returned to his childhood home the very next day. Now this is where the story gets a little personal for a lot of the parties involved. And unfortunately, some innocent bystanders do get in the way. The next day, which was Halloween, a teenaged Lori Strode dropped a key off at the Myers house for her father, who was a realtor. It's believed at this point that Michael noticed Lori and quickly grew obsessed with the young woman. He proceeded to stalk her and her friends throughout the afternoon. He also stole Judith's gravestone from a local cemetery and broke into Nichols' hardware store to acquire some knives, rope, and a Halloween mask. Meanwhile, Dr. Loomis had followed Michael to Haddonfield and warned at the town sheriff, Lee Brackett, of the danger he posed. As night grew, Lori and Annie, her friend, were babysitting across the street from each other. Apparently, Michael watched them both from the shadows. It wasn't long until he murdered Annie. He strangled her in her car as she left to meet her boyfriend before slitting her throat. Later, Lori's other friend, Linda, and her own boyfriend, Bob, showed up, only to fall victim to Michael as well. These are the innocent bystanders who just sort of were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Naturally, Lori grew worried about her friends when they no longer answered her phone calls or didn't show up when they said they were going to. So Lori crossed the street to investigate. She found Annie's body arranged under Judith Meyer's gravestone and Linda and Bob hidden in the closets. According to Lori's report, Michael then appeared out of nowhere and lunged at her catching her on the arm with his knife. This prompted her to run for help, as it would any natural human being. Michael followed her across the street, and Lori was forced to stab him with both a wire hanger and his own knife. Thinking she was done, Lori sat and relaxed for just a moment. But things weren't as they seemed, and Michael, defying all logic and all odds and all natural order, rose again to resume his attack on the poor, hapless Lori. It was at this moment, during the chaotic nature of the scuffle between Michael and Lori, that Dr. Loomis overheard from the street. He burst through the door and appeared at the top of the stairs and shot Michael six times. This caused him to fall off the balcony. However, 
when Loomis, after checking on Lori, went to confirm the kill, Michael and his body had vanished. It's still unknown to this day how Michael Myers survived six shots to the abdomen, a fall from a two-story balcony, and just got up and walked away. There have been theories, many, many theories over the years from ancient Celtic cults to him being possessed. Some of them are more interesting than others, while others are just a little bit of a, what should we call it, uh, out there. That theory revolves around Michael being destined to kill off his family bloodline. Of course, that's a little absurd, as that would require some sort of supernatural presence. And while Michael may appear to have a supernatural entity maybe controlling him or within him, it's more likely that he is just a man with severe mental disorders. Michael was eventually found apprehended and arrested. Being found insane, Michael Myers was then institutionalized at Smith Grove Psychiatric Hospital once again for 40 years. On October 29th, 2018, Michael was interviewed by a pair of true crime podcasters, Aaron Corey and Dana Haynes. And while that seems very irrelevant and unnecessary at this moment, it will come up again in just a little bit. The pair of true crime podcasters also interviewed Lori Strode, the first time she's spoken to the public in, well, a very long time. At this point, Lori has been locked away in a secluded cabin protected by devices of her own making. She is convinced and tells the podcasters that Michael will return one day. She has to be prepared for when that day comes. Unfortunately for a lot of people involved, that day would be sooner rather than later. Once again, Michael is being transferred. Once again, things do not go as planned. It appears that a lot of people involved with the Michael Myers case had never heard of Let the Sleeping Dog Lie, or Don't Poke the Beast, or whatever you want to call it. Michael is being transferred on October 30th to a maximum security prison. But what happened the last time Michael was about to be transferred somewhere? He broke out. Once again, that is exactly what happened. Nobody knows the true series of events that leads up to the moment of Michael's escape. All that we know is that a son and father taking a road trip came across a overturned bus. They get out to investigate and notice that there are, well, strange people wandering around the road. That was the last anybody would see of these two alive ever again. It's reported that Michael killed the father and son, stole the truck that they were traveling in, and made his way once again for Haddonfield. Halloween Day, 2018. Michael Myers follows the true crime podcasters to a gas station. He kills the attendant and both the podcasters in brutal fashion. That's just the start of Halloween that year. Michael's reign of terror continues throughout the day with seemingly random attacks, breaking into homes and murdering people for, well, really no reason. He kills a young babysitter. He kills her boyfriend, many of friends and family associated with Lori and her family meet their demise on that fateful night 
He kills several police officers as well. Reports suggest that Michael follows Laurie Strode's granddaughter to her house, the fortress in the middle of the woods. It's supposed to be a safe place. It's supposed to be a fortress after all. However, Michael, being the ruthless predator that he is, doesn't let any of that get in his way of his final prize, Laurie Strode. He breaks into the house where he terrifies and terrorizes Laurie, her daughter, and her granddaughter. With two police dead on the outside and Laurie's son-in-law murdered in cold blood, Laurie and her daughter and her granddaughter must fend for themselves. Luckily, Laurie had taught her daughter well. She prepared her for this day, even if it were never to come. The events inside the house are a little confusing. We have reports from Lori, we have reports from her daughter Karen, and her granddaughter Allison. While they all seem to match up pretty well, there's different timelines and perspectives. But what we do know for sure is that Lori somehow managed to trap Michael in the basement of her house. She had it prepared as a cage and eventually sealed off the door. Next, through a series of propane tanks and piping throughout the house, the structure went up in a blaze. Everybody within had to get out. Everybody, except for Michael Myers, who was left trapped in the cage designed to send him to hell. The last Lori and her family sees of Michael is his melting body surrounded by flame. However, however, upon a second look, well, they don't see his body. Assuming that he fell over, dead, suffocated, or just burned up, the family leave the house, only for them to hear police and fire sirens off in the distance. Is that a good thing, or is that a bad thing? It's hard to say. That's all we have for Michael's reports of murder and death and destruction. But is his story actually done? Well, that's for us to wait and see. Maybe Michael Myers will appear again. In a year or two, maybe, it'll be another 40 years before he makes his appearance and tries to kill Lori and her family. However, at that point, I believe time would do the job for him. Now, while Michael only had two real killing sprees, he did have a lot of bodies built up beneath his feet. Let's go over some of the victims because it is important to remember the victims in cases like this. We all know that his first victim was Judith Myers, who was stabbed nine times. Following that, on his return to Haddonfield in 1978, Michael also killed Christopher Hastings, Annie Brackett, Robert Sims, Linda Vanderklok, and a police officer. However, when he returned 40 years later, well, Michael's thirsty for blood. He'd killed off the bus driver, driving him to his maximum security prison. He killed a man called Haskell, and another one called Kuhnman. The father and son, who came across the bus crash scene. He killed a mechanic, killed a gas station clerk as well. The two podcasters, Aaron and Dana, killed Gina Pancella, Andrea Wagner, Vicky, Dave, Oscar, who are all Allison, also known as Lori's granddaughter's friends, Dr. Rebnir Sertin, who was his new physician after the demise of Dr. Loomis, 
Officer Richards, Officer Francis, and Ray Nelson. Unfortunately, none of these people survived their meeting with Michael Myers. In fact, very few ever survived their meeting with The Shape as he became known. Other monikers were The Boogeyman, and all those names do justice for just what he is. He's a monster, a shape in the shadows, a figure stalking the night, hunting his prey. What will become of Michael Myers? That is the biggest question. With 24 victims to his name, it's hard to imagine what would happen should Michael escape the blazes of Lori's basement. But given his Houdini acts in the past, it wouldn't be unheard of if he did spring up one more time to try to finish what he started. This has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. My name is Casey. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Any five-star reviews will be read out on the show. So if you want to get a shout-out, that's the best way to do it. Catch me on Twitter at HorrorShotsProd, as in productions, on Instagram at Ominous Origins Pod, Facebook at HorrorShots, or Twitch at slash MuskyFox. That's Fox, spelled F-A-U-X. Also be sure to check out the Morbidly Beautiful Facebook page as well, at Morbidly Beautiful, to check out my daily streams of various games and chatting. All that fun stuff. But that is everything for this week. So until next time.